The following recording is from Parramatta Christian Church. We pray that this message inspires you in your walk with Christ. Okay, so we're uh, coming to this series on uh, Through the Fire. And uh, I I just want to... uh, Thank you for this series. I think it's been a great series. I've really uh, enjoyed what we've uh, been able to follow. I think they've been incredibly practical and helpful. Uh, And can I say, he hasn't paid for this at all, but can I uh, say you are so blessed to have a pastor like Hill and his wife Dash. Uh, And I know you uh, you love them, but uh, keep on loving them and encourage them because the more that you support them and the more that you bless them and love them, the more that you will be blessed and supported and encouraged. So uh, thank you, Hill, and uh, thank you, Dash. As we've uh, gone through this series, uh, I think what it's done to us is give us a healthy, (coughs) to use a big phrase, uh, theology of pain and suffering, but also a theology of hope. Uh, And what I've appreciated is that it's really grounded in real life and real people uh, dealing with the issues that we... We can't pretend that they're not there. They, they really are, and so that has been a blessing. Uh, I've been blessed by that book that you referred to, Nancy Guthrie book, uh, Be Still. Uh, we've got an audio copy of it. Uh, if you haven't got it, access it. Uh, and uh, we've been listening to it. We've got our daughter in Newcastle, uh, and they're just 25 short chapters, and they've been really good uh, just tapping into them. Uh, I thought it would be good for us just to, uh, just before we really start, uh, we've come to the final of the series uh, on uh, Through the Fire, and I, I've sort of wondered, uh, so we've been talking about pain and suffering, and I couldn't quite work out, why did Hill choose me to bring the, the end, uh, but maybe he wants to bring an end to your suffering and pain? <laughs> or I might create more, who knows? Uh, But let's just uh, quickly refresh our minds. Some of you who maybe have missed out on the series, uh, if you have missed them, can I really encourage you to go back and uh, listen to them? Uh, There was the the first one on why there is pain, uh, God's perspective on pain and suffering. Then week two was uh, what is God doing in our pain, uh, how God uses pain, his purpose. Uh, Week three was how God comes to us in our pain and suffering. Last week was... uh, Who is this God who meets us in our pain? Uh, We looked at Isaiah 53, Jesus the suffering servant uh, who meets with us. And today we're going to look at uh, when will the pain end and uh, and the suffering. Uh, But this morning um, we're sort of going to look at a little bit of uh, Luke chapter 15. So whatever way you access uh, the scriptures would be good. I'm going to read uh, part of it. Uh, I've, I used to use NIV. I've now gone to the, uh, the CSB, uh, just a new Bible. The other one was falling apart. Uh, Christian Standard Bible, and I thought being a Parramatta Christian church, it would be good for me to use a Christian <laughs> Standard Bible. Okay, Luke 15. Uh, And Jesus starts off, uh, as usual people are coming to him, and all the tax collectors and sinners were approaching to listen to him. But there is always this pushback, this reaction. 
And the Pharisees and the scribes were complaining, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So these, remember, they aren't the bad guys. They are the good religious, we would say conservative evangelical people of the day, and they can't quite cope with this radical Jesus who is mixing with the people they deem not to be part of their circle. They're not good church circle, not good church people that Jesus is mixing with. And so he tells them uh, three stories that we are really familiar with. The first one, of course, is the shepherd. Uh, He loses one sheep, he's got 99, but that one is still valuable. He searches for it, he finds it, he comes back. There's the woman who loses one coin. She has 10, but she's lost one. She goes searching for it, she finds it. And in both cases, there's this response, that which was lost is found, and there is this sense of celebration. And then he tells this, a, a, a third story or parable, which is a longer one, uh, and that's sort of what we're going to look at and interact a bit today. Now, most of us with our Bibles, we have little bold headings that are put in above. Now, can I remind you that those headings are only the particular translator that you have. They weren't originally there. Uh, now, mine says the parable of the lost son. Uh, I actually think that is the most unhelpful heading because I don't think it's about the lost son. Uh, we're going to look... I think it's actually about the father. It's the story about the father. And there's not one lost son, but there are actually two lost sons. And so just those headings sometimes skew the way that we read uh, our scripture. So let's uh, pick it up at verse 11. Uh, and he also said a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate I have coming to me. So he distribute, distributed the assets to them. Notice? So in those days, normally you'd wait until dad died, then you'd get the estate. Uh, but you could access it earlier on. So the younger son probably got about a third. But the older son, and you need to remember this later in the story, he probably got the remainder of it. So it wasn't that he was destitute, he got a great big chunk of it. Not many days later, the younger son gathered together all he had and travelled to a distant country where he squandered his estate in foolish living. So again, the picture there is he didn't just stay within the community, but he went to a distant country, which was probably a non-Jewish country. So he's not only left his family, he's left his father, he's left his brother, presumably he's left his mother, he's left his religion, he's left his faith, he's left his culture. He's left everything and betrayed everything that is of deep value to his parents. And he lives in a distant country. And after he'd spent everything, a severe famine struck that country and he had nothing. Then he went to work for one of the citizens in that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. Now remember, uh, Jewish people don't have bacon and eggs. They don't eat pork. Uh, That's ingrained into culture, but he is so absolutely destitute and desperate. He's working with the pigs and then he starts to eat pig food or wants to eat the pig food. But eventually, verse 17, when he came to his senses, he said... How many of my father's hired workers have more than enough food? And here I am, dying of hunger. I'll get up, go to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired workers. There's this transition. Give me, give me this demand. And now he just says, make me nothing. 
Make me like one of your hired workers. So he got up and went off to his father. But while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. And he ran and threw his arms around his neck and kissed him. The son said, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father told the servants, Quick, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Then bring the fatted calf and slaughter it and let's celebrate with a feast. Because this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He who was lost is found. And so they began to celebrate. Now his oldest son was in the field. As he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. He summoned one of the servants, questioning what these things meant. Your brother is here, he told him. And your father has slaughtered the fatted calf because he has him back safe and sound. But then he became angry and didn't want to go in. So his father came out and pleaded with him. But he replied to his father, Look, I've been slaving for you all these years and I've never disobeyed your orders, yet you have never given me a goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, notice not his brother, but when this son of yours... Cain, who devoured your assets with prostitutes, there's no evidence of that, but it could have been, who has devoured your assets with prostitutes, you slaughtered the fatted calf for him. Notice the father's response. Son, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again, he was lost and is found. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, pioneer and perfecter of our faith, we come before you this morning. We acknowledge that you are the one who endured the cross. You endured pain and suffering because you knew the joy that was set before you. Jesus, you can identify with us and sympathise with us in our times of weakness, in our times of struggle, in our times of pain. And we pray that you would teach us so that we do not become weary and give up, but that we would continue living with our eyes fixed on you. Amen. How long? How long, Lord? Will you let me put up with this? How long, Lord, will you allow this struggle and pain and suffering in my life? How long will you look the other way? How long must I struggle with the anguish in my soul and the sorrow in my heart every day? How long? Psalm 13. Oh Lord, why do you stand far away? Why do you hide when I'm in trouble? You're supposed to be the God who comes near to me. Are you off on sabbatical or something? I need you now. Where are you? Why is it, that's Psalm 10, why is it that when you look around in the world that those who don't believe in you, God, seem to have life so easy, they just cruise through life, nothing ever seems to go wrong, and yet... I keep on believing and trusting and doing all the godly things and my life seems to suck at present. It just doesn't seem right and fair. 
Psalm 73. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why are you so far away when I groan for help? Psalm 22. Remember they the words that Jesus uttered on the cross, that he, the Son, also sense the sense of separation. Maybe you have secretly prayed things like that and you haven't been quite game to tell others that you've actually wondered where God is and felt that he is distant. That you have felt alone and deserted and let down in the very times that you needed him. Maybe you are a weary traveller in this life and you feel like giving up this morning. Or maybe you have been in those times when you have felt like giving up. And if you haven't, there probably will be a case somewhere along the journey where you feel like giving up because you are weary. Maybe a friend has confided in you and said, where is God in my situation? And all you've got are those pious little glib answers, but you know they don't really resonate and don't really help. How long, O Lord? But I'm sure as a Christian you're also familiar with the passage in uh, Revelation chapter uh, 22. And I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling is with humanity and he is with them. They will be his peoples and God will be with them and and will be their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief crying, pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. At one level that's fantastic, isn't it? Isn't it encouraging to know that one day there will be no more sin, no more sickness, no more suffering but if you're in the midst when there are tears and pain and suffering that seems so far away. It might even feel a little bit like a fairy story to you because you are thinking That's not going to help me right now. That's way off. But that's a long way for me before I get to that because I still have tears and pain and suffering and death that I have to live with. And so we sort of have these two realities that we have to live with. On the one hand, there is this great promise of God. We look forward to something far better. There is another home for us. But while we are weary travellers on earth, We do go through the times of doubt and questions and pain and suffering and trial. My mum is 97. Uh, Maybe three years ago she was diagnosed with breast cancer Uh, and just a few months ago uh, they discovered that she's now got secondary cancers of tumours in her brain. Uh, And she said to me when I asked how she was coping with this, she said, you know, I think the destination, I'm sure the destination is going to be good. I'm not worried about the destination, but it's the journey I'm not sure about. And that's where we live, isn't it? On the one hand, we have this destination, but on another hand, we still have the journey that we deal with. A book that I read, I think, last year, uh, was called, uh, just came out last year, Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy by Mark uh, Vrogok. Uh, and can I encourage you, if you haven't uh, come across this, uh, it's a great book to, uh, to fit in with the series, grab it. Uh, and he talks, he looks at the stuff in the book of Lamentations and, uh, and the Psalms. 
I remember the Psalms, there's 150 of them. Uh, at one level they are the prayer book of uh, God's people of the Old Covenant and they are also the song book. Uh, and there are all these songs of celebration but a third of them are what are called laments. They are the cries of God's people when life isn't hard and they are really instructive as we read them. We see how they dealt with the journey but the anticipation of the destination. He says in his book, he says, to cry is human but to lament is Christian. Everyone cries, there is this sense of hopelessness. But he goes on to tease out the fact that a lament is this recognition of the reality of pain, but this paradox that we have, uh, the reality of pain, but we also live with the promise of God's goodness and the hope that he's going to do something else. And so as we come to Luke 15, uh, we're going to uh, look at this. Uh, One of the great dangers of dealing with a passage that is ultra-familiar, we think that we uh, have it all and understand it and as I've sat with it over the past weeks uh, there's certainly four four characters you could preach four sermons on this there's the Pharisees and the scribes they're the two sons uh, and there's the father uh, but this morning I want us to think about the father uh, and I think he's the I think he's central to the whole picture uh, I, I think the shepherd is the father I think the woman looking for the coins is the father and the father with the two sons This is God the Father. Uh, And I've thought about giving this the title, The Lavish Love of Our Father. Uh, And so I want us uh, to think around that. Uh, But I'm also going to do something a little bit different this morning. Uh, Not only are we going to look at this passage, we're going to look at a painting. I want us to look at a painting by the Dutch uh, painter Rembrandt. You can sort of see it there. Now, on the way out, uh, you're all going to get a... uh, a big reproduction painting, or maybe a little postcard. Okay, so you're going to get a, you're you're going to get one of these. So we're going to talk a little bit about this, but uh, we'll uh, reflect on this, and then you can take it home. Uh, Rembrandt, uh, in his uh, life, he he painted a lot. I don't know whether it was just the time, but a lot of religious paintings. Uh, but let's just run through what happened in his life. In 1635, a son died. 1638, a daughter died. 1640, another daughter died. 1642, his wife died, and he was left with a nine-month-old son by the name of Titus. His second wife was put in what they then called a mental asylum. 1963, his third wife died. Uh, And for all the success that we celebrate with these paintings and so forth, In 1956, he was totally bankrupt and absolutely dependent on his friends. Uh, Then in 1668, his son Titus died. 1663, he died, and all that was left from his family is a daughter. Uh, And so right at the very end, this is one of his last paintings uh, that he painted. And so somehow this this story resonated with his life story where he was. I want to introduce you to another man by the name of Henry Nouwen. Uh, I was introduced uh, to this painting a few years ago and then I started doing exploration myself. 
Uh, now and came across this painting. A friend had this poster up and he was just blown away by it. And he wanted to know where the original was. And about three years later, he managed to get to St. Petersburg in Russia and he got access to the original painting. Friends of friends and all these sorts of contacts. And so he went into the art gallery at 2.30 in the afternoon, <coughs> pulled up a chair, and he sat there and the tourists were coming and going, and he sat there and he sat there and he sat there. And eventually at 5, 5.30, the cleaner came and kicked him out. Uh, and he still hadn't absorbed enough, and so he came back again and he spent another four hours just sitting, looking at this interpretation of this story. And then out of that he wrote uh, the book The Return of the Prodigal. Uh, and one of the things he says in this book, he thinks that uh, this painting as we, we think about it and we think about the story of Jesus, it's a way into the kingdom of God. Uh, yep, next one, thanks. I just want to take a few moments as you look at that painting uh, and you can give some feedback, this isn't just rhetorical. Uh, I want you to think about what do you feel when you see it, or maybe what you think. Any just immediate reactions? The dark? Yeah, no, that's really important. It is, it's a dark painting. Yeah. But the, the light is focused on the sun. Yeah. yeah. Pardon? Yeah. Yep. Forgiveness? Yep. Yeah, desperate, yeah. Some of these things will come in a bit bit closer. Yeah. So we think that the one on the right standing is the older son. Yeah. And so there's this separation, he's got his arms crossed, he's not pleased. Okay. I want you to think a bit how the father must have felt. So his young son is really disowning him when he comes uh, and he turns his back on his father as he leaves. He takes what is legally his, but he leaves, but in leaving he's left, he's left everything. And so I guess within the father there is this ongoing grief and I'm sure that the father, every time he went down the street to the marketplace or he went to church, he was aware that people were talking. People would have been talking about, you know, he let his son go. Maybe they reflected on the fact and didn't think that he was a very good father. Uh, maybe they were saying, you know what his son is up to. And in an honour and shame culture, this would have brought enormous shame. It would have been easy for him to just stay at home. But every time, he thought about his younger son. Every time he went out, he would have been confronted with this sense of shame. But when, the, Jesus says, but when he was a long way off, the son was a long way off, the father ran to him. And I was thinking about that and I think, you know, obviously the father didn't sort of shut himself off and just become absorbed with his life and his farm and his business. He didn't wait until one of the servants maybe said, hey, boss, you know, the, your son's come home. I think he was sneaking a look all the time. I think as much as he was broken, he is looking and waiting for his son. 
He probably didn't sort of want to let on, but he was probably all the time looking this way, and as he's talking to someone, he's looking down the road wondering, maybe it's today my son will come home. And so when the son comes home, he does what a Middle Eastern man doesn't do, especially an elderly man. He runs down, throws his arm around, kisses him, and then creates this celebration. But let's look at his face now. When there is this encounter with the son and the father, now, if it was me, I might have rebuked my son, told him off. It was about time that you know, I expressed what I felt and then said, OK, now you're welcome back. I might have put him on probation. We could have done all of these sorts of things. The son has rehearsed these lines of what he's going to say, but the father is basically saying, don't, don't worry, we're going to celebrate your back. But when you look at Rembrandt's depiction of his face, you sort of see a dad, I think he's carrying the scars of pain. He's weary. He's tired. He probably was lying awake at night, worrying about his son, wondering where his son was, what he was up to, was he still alive? Young people, you sometimes cause your parents grief. <laughs> and it's not your job. And even when your kids grow up and they're in their 30s and getting toward their 40s, they still cause you grief. Because we can't help being parents. That's part of being a parent. And so I think we see this sadness in him. A week or so ago, I was at a function and uh, this lady I hadn't seen for a while shared with me about uh, their eldest son, who's 20, mid-20s, 25, I think. It was interesting, she just opened up and blurted it out. She said, he's had three children to three different wives, Christian, Christian family, all, all different mums. The third one now is, he's married, it's pretty rocky and pretty rough, but they're trying to make a go of it and they're trying to support. But I could see in her, the pain and the hurt of a parent who just wants her son to come home. I think that's this picture that we see. I think this is the picture that Jesus is portraying for us. Maybe you here are a parent carrying that grief. Maybe you are carrying the burden of a child who's grown up, you've taught them and trained them in the gospel, and they've put their hand up and, and walked off. Or maybe they've made some very unwise life choices. You can sort of corral and control your kids when they're younger. But as they get older, I mean, even when they're two and three, you can't do it properly, can you? <laughs> but as they get older, you've sort of got to let them go, but you can't let them go. And maybe you are carrying that pain. Uh, maybe some of you are carrying the pain today, Father's Day, roll stuff back when you think about your father. For some of you, you might be carrying a father wound of the way that your father treated you. For some of you, you have great memories of a loving and caring father that you just want to copy. But for some of you, you might have a wound. Some of you might be carrying what's called father neglect. You just had a dad who was really busy or disconnected or, or, or just engaged in all kinds of other things. Or maybe some of you have never even met your father. But here is this picture of God as our Father. 
And then we see the father uh, with the son. Thanks. And so we, we zero in and there's this contrast in the way that they are painted. The, the father with his red robe, which is obviously a sign of wealth and privilege, and the young son has nothing. He's destitute, he's busted, he's missing a sandal, the other one that he's got is broken, his clothes are pretty well threadbare. And yet the father, I think that's the picture, of wrapping his arms and his cloak around, it's like a tent. It's like dad saying, welcome home. You are safe here. No matter what's happened, this is a place that you are loved and you are safe and you are welcome. It's the picture of our father, remember, in the Old Testament, of the God who, who is like a, a, a hen and she gathers up the chicks under, under his wings and, and she protects them and they scurry in there because that's the safe place. I think this is the picture of the father that we are meant to see. But there is another fascinating thing when we look at a little bit closer and we look at the father's hand. And as you look at the left hand, that's the left hand, as you look at the left hand, there is this masculine hand, a hand which is strong and powerful. I think symbolising all of those images that you've looked at in recent weeks of God being defender, God being sovereign, God being a rock, God being a fortress, God being the Lord of hosts. But the other hand is a feminine hand. Soft, gentle, loving, caring, nurturing. I never realised that until someone I was reading pointed the differences out. This is the father that we see. Remember that picture in the Old Testament? Of, he says, I'm like a shepherd and I pick up a little lamb and hold you close to my chest. I can feel your heart beating. Sometimes we need the strong hand, sometimes we need the soft hand. But that's the picture of God that is being portrayed. Uh, quite a few years ago, uh, I was part of a, uh, well, still am, Bill and I, part of a pastor spiritual renewal group, and I was in this particular group and, and sharing, and uh, we were going through a really difficult time with uh, one of our children. Um, it wasn't all his fault. I think he had a problem father. But uh, I, I'd shared a few things, and I forget exactly what I said, but I, re I remember one of these, these men simply said to me, but how does your father treat you? Oops. That was like a knife in the chest. How does your father treat you? And as we step back a little bit, and we, we've already touched on the older son, uh, he's got similar clothes on. He's had all of the experience of the father. He's lived with the father. He's had access, access to everything the father has. Uh, I think he's the Pharisee. I think he's the one who, is, who, who knows all about God, who has been there, but has never really connected with the love and grace of God. Uh, and let me say, I think this is sometimes one of the most dangerous places for that to happen. Uh, you see, we cheer, like I think the Pharisees were cheering when Jesus was telling the story. We know the younger son. Know the bad ones out there sinning, getting drunk, having an off with all kinds of women, getting into drugs, doing all this kind of stuff. But we're not like that. We're good. We go to church every Sunday. Our parents mightn't know what we're doing during the week, but everyone else thinks that we're really good kids. But we can be just like this, the older son 
who actually didn't know the grace and love of his father, even though he lived there and had absolutely everything. Uh, one of another book that I read uh, recently was called uh, *The Deeply Formed Life* by uh, Rich Velotis. Uh, if you know Pete Scazzera, he's um, connected with Pete Scazzera's ministry. Uh, and this post came up uh, just the other week. I thought it was so appropriate. He said, "The story of Scripture is in four phases. I love you. I'm with you. Don't be afraid. You can come home. It's great, isn't it? I love you." I'm with you, don't be afraid, you can come home. And here we have this father who is saying, I want you home. It doesn't matter what your baggage is, it doesn't matter what you've done, but I want you home. It doesn't matter what your journey has been, it doesn't matter what your pain has been, I want you to come home. And then he creates this picture of the celebration of the fatted calf. And it's interesting, isn't it, that Jesus keeps telling those stories over and over again. The story of the banquet the story of the wedding feast, the story of celebration. Now, what it will actually be like, I'm not quite sure, but it's this story of celebration that Jesus wants us to come home. Weary travellers, Jesus is saying, I want you to come home. Uh, in his book, Henry Nouwen says, when I look through God's eyes at my lost self and discover God's joy at my coming home, then my life may become less anguished and more trusting. What helped him? It was the view of home. It was the view that he had a place to go. We're not going to look at... Uh, we'll keep moving on, but in Hebrews 11, there are all those great stories of the great men and women of faith. By faith Moses, by faith Abraham, by faith Noah. All the way by faith. And then as you get to the end of the chapter, there are all of the people who are listed not by name, not the famous ones that we know, but the nobodies, if you like, who suffer incredibly because of their faith in the living God. But they are still worthy. They are still blessed because there is home for them. What kept them going? Why did they not become weary and give up? And in verse 16 of Hebrews 11 we read, Instead they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. That's interesting, isn't it? That God was promising them this land, this city, all of these things, but they were actually looking beyond that. They were living in the pain and suffering of this world, but they were looking beyond to something far greater. How long? How long, O oh Lord? Hillary's given me a lot to talk about this morning. He said, I want you to talk about the Father, but I also want you to talk about the coming home. So we've just got to go a little bit longer, please. I think one of the great themes of the Bible is uh, the presence of... Uh, of the kingdom, it talks about in the Old Testament, but particularly Jesus kept talking about the kingdom of God. Remember? The kingdom of God, sometimes talked about the kingdom of heaven. Uh, it's the same thing. Uh, and if we go to uh, the next slide, thanks. We'll flip through these. Okay, so I want you to sort of see the visual of this. So the yellow at the beginning, of course, is God as he created the world. It's all good. It's perfect. There's this place of blessing and interaction with God. And when 
Adam and Eve sin, everything gets broken and therefore we live in this broken, busted world and so there is this mixture of both yellow and black. Uh, but, and we need to remember that even though we live in this broken, hurting world, that God's grace and goodness is everywhere. What does Acts say? That God sent his reign on the just and the unjust. Even unbelievers and atheists still get blessed by God and so we see the blessing of God. But all the way through the Old Testament, in those passages in Hebrews, they were looking forward to a better home. They were looking forward to an end to this broken, busted world. They were looking forward to something else. Last week, with Isaiah 53, there was this reminder that part of the story of that was Jesus coming and setting something new up. Now, I think there are two errors to, to avoid. Thanks. When we think about the kingdom. Next one. Thanks. Uh, the first one is that God's kingdom is something way off in the future. Uh, that we just have to wait, we have to grin and bear it while we go through this life, we persevere, if we hang in there long enough, uh, we'll fall over the line at the end and then it'll all be good. Uh, and so the gospel is just sort of like this insurance policy, I've got to believe so I don't go to hell, at least I'll go to heaven, but that's about it. I believe, I live, I die and then it'll be okay. But if you live like that, God is not actually present with you, is he? You are just waiting for God to rock up whenever it is sometime in the future. I think the other error is the other extreme, where some people say, well, the kingdom has already come. Everything that we're going to have, this is it. Uh, and particularly for those who say, well, if you, to enjoy it, you just have to have enough faith. If your life isn't going too well and a bit wobbly around the edges, it's probably because you haven't got enough faith. But if you believe and truly believe and have enough faith, you're not going to have any pain or tears or suffering or crying or all of those things. That's all now. But you know and I know through our own lives, that's not true either, is it? And so I think that the best way to view it is with this picture. Remember Jesus kept confusing people. He'd say, the kingdom is right here. The kingdom is among you. The kingdom is yet to come. Sometimes you sort of say, Jesus, will you make your mind up? Is it here or is it going to come? <laughs> but I think he's saying it's both. And so the kingdom of heaven, and I think that's why Matthew uses that word phrase, kingdom of heaven, it is heaven has broken into this world in the gospel. And if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus, the kingdom has broken into your life now. That's why when you deal with pain and suffering and the going gets tough, you know that there is far more. You are looking forward to your eternal home. And so we live with this tension. We enjoy the kingdom, but we are waiting for the kingdom. You watch little kids with shadows when they start working out uh, what shadows are. Our little three-year-old granddaughter has just started to realise uh, that grey shape on the ground is connected to her. Uh, the other day we were walking along and I jumped on it the shadow, and I think she, she really wasn't too happy. <laughs> it's just a shadow. But she was starting to, in her little brain, work out that shadow is me. But the shadow is not real, but the shadow is her, isn't it? And so in the same way, when we think about the new heavens and the new earth and God's kingdom breaking, we are living in the shadow. 
The shadow is real. What casts the shadow? The sun, doesn't it? The reality. And so we live in the shadow, but we keep looking forward to the reality. Let me tell you a story of two men. Here we go. Now, I know some of you, as you look at this picture, you're probably thinking, oh, okay, I know Presbyterians are pretty weird. Um, and, and is this the dress code? <laughs> this is the dress code for Presbyterian men? No, it's not. It just happened to be this weird, somehow we all turned up and we looked at each other. Or maybe you're also thinking, ah, these are the pro-tomato men. <laughs> That's not true either. Let me tell you, uh, the man on my left, David. Yeah, on my left, yeah. David and Margaret had, had two sons, so neither could have children, so they never had the pleasure of being grandparents. Uh, I think about 10 years ago, uh, one of his daughters uh, got cancer and uh, it was one of those aggressive, painful cancers. Uh, and it's uh, when her mum talks about it now, it was the most traumatic period, those last weeks and even hours uh, of what she had to suffer with death. And so David had to deal with that. A few years back, he was diagnosed with acute myeloid leukaemia. Uh, and when he went to uh, the hospital to be diagnosed, uh, David's 70 but looks fairly fit. Uh, the specialist said to him, you know, we don't treat people over 70. Uh, the treatment is too harsh and the prognosis is not good, but we'll do it for you. Uh, he said, we're just about going to have to kill you before we can save you. Uh, as David went through the first treatment, I saw him at, in hospital partway through and he said, you know, I don't think I can keep going. Uh, yet he kept going and new treatments and more treatments and more treatments. Uh, but every time you'd meet David and every time you'd talk to him, one phrase kept coming up over and over again. He was vomiting. His immune system was trashed. He was constantly in and out of hospital. But God is good. I think, how can you say that? But God is good. And David had a heart for other people and his wife said one day he, he, we'd come out, he was well into his treatment and he was frail and he was weak and we were walking to the car and he's shuffling along and he saw someone from our church that he knew and he said, I need to go and see how she's going. And Mary, uh, Margaret's saying, you need to get in the car, you're not well. And he says, no, I need to talk to her. And so he's always doing that. And then at his funeral, there was this bloke who, who had been a fellow patient who had wandered right away from the Lord, he wanted to speak because David had such a profound effect on his life while he was in hospital. You see, he was a man whose view of the kingdom shaped not only how he died, but how he lived. Let me talk about the other person, the one on my right-hand side, Fred. They have two children, one by the name of Richard. I married Richard and Viv toward the end of 2017. They were expecting their first child 
in the middle of the following year. They were all excited. They were going to move from the city. They were going to live in the area, come to our church. We had all of these great things that were going to go on. And last night, as I was looking through my notes, I came across this. 10th of July, 2015. This last week, I felt that we've had a dark black cloud pressing down upon us. With a dark sky, there are also the glimmer of stars and planets. The darker the sky, the darker the stars shine. Today, the darkness is real, oppressive, painful, overwhelming. And I'm not going to pretend that it's going to go away. But we need to remember that even in our dark places, there are glimmers of light. And today we see and feel the darkness, but we also see and enjoy and admire lights. The light of Richard's character, his lovely smile, his good heart, his compassion for the poor and broken. Jesus, Richard knew Jesus, the light of the world, and he rested in the fact that the perfect light had shone into his personal darkness and brought rays of life and hope. But I said, someone is not here this morning. This was Richard's funeral. He died by accident a few days earlier. Viv was not there, his wife. For she was in hospital giving birth to their firstborn. Fred knew grief of a father. The deep, deep pain of grief. Last year, Fred, after trying numerous times to retire and semi-retire, eventually they retired and bought a caravan, bought a bigger car, and they ended off, they, COVID was starting to loosen up and they got into Queensland and then I spoke to him when they were in Mount Isa and he said, you know, I'm feeling really tired. And he said, but it's good, you know, God's good. Everything's falling into place and the border's just open, we can get into the Northern Territory. They got into the Northern Territory he decided they should go to the doctors at uh, Tennant Creek. Went to the doctors. Well, remember, uh, Western Australia had seceded from, uh, from Australia. They were off doing their own thing. Uh, but just at that time, they decided that they would rejoin us. And uh, this doctor said, look, the closest specialist to do these specialised scans is in uh, Kununurra in WA. Within days, the borders opened, they got across. And he said, wow, you know, God's good, cares for us, everything's falling into place. And then he rang me and he said, the scans have shown I've got pancreatic cancer. Uh, by then, we'd closed down and people couldn't visit in hospital, so they decided to go to Perth and get treatment there. They spent two or three months there, everything again. God just provided for them in wonderful ways. And eventually when they got home, I sat down with Fred and we were having coffee and I said to him, Fred, how's all this treating you? How's that? The cancer treatment, the uncertainty. Those of you who know about pancreatic cancer know that that's one of the worst you can possibly get. What's this doing to your faith? He said, you know, I have never wavered. He carried grief as a father, but he never wavered. Why? because he knew that there was something else and he knew this father who was present with him and so each time I'd go and meet we, I'd pray and think about what am I going to read what am I going to share 
And one day he wanted me to come into his room and he asked me, he said, you know, I want you to take my funeral. So we talked about that. And then I prayed, as I always did, prayed for him and I put my my hand on his shoulders and by then he's just skin and bone and I pray. And then he says, let me pray for you, brother. (laughs) You know, you're dying and you want to pray for me. There is something in the heart of men like this. They know the Father. They're not like that elder son who's standing aside, but they are, they've been broken and they've been hurt, but they still want to minister to other people in their hurt. They were longing for a better home. They both knew that God was good. We might just flick over the next slide, I think. Can I encourage you, for those of you who are really awkward when someone is going through a difficult time, you don't know what to say, you don't know what to do, you think you'll mess it up. Can I encourage you to draw alongside the people who are hurting because they will minister to you. You don't have to say anything fancy, just be there, love them, listen to them, pray for them. Quote simply says, faith is the radical trust that home has always been there and always will be there. We touched on Hebrews 11. The men and women of faith who went before us as great examples. But chapter 12 starts off like this. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Let us run with perseverance the race set out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. I think your father knows that you will probably grow weary and lose heart. But he says, these are the ones who have gone before. The Moseses, the Noahs, the Abrahams, But for me, people like Fred and people like David. I'm going to wrap up and we're going to do three things. One, I'm going to read from uh, 1 Peter 1. Uh, We're going to do a little response thing and then we're just going to allow God to speak to us as we listen to a song. Let me read from 1 Peter 1. That's one of my favourite passages uh, and I think it ties all this together. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of his great mercy, he has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and fading, kept in heaven for you. Notice he has already given you this. You don't have to wait to die to get this stuff. He has already given you through a living hope, through the resurrection But your inheritance is kept in heaven for you. You don't have to look after it. He's looking after it. That's the Christian hope and certainty. And then he goes on and he says, you are being guarded by God's power through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed at the last time. You have salvation, but you're still waiting for more. But you are being guarded. You don't have the faith or the strength Your persevering to the end doesn't depend on how great your faith is, but the one who holds you, 
the father who wraps his tent around you. And you rejoice in this, even though now for a short time, if necessary, you suffer grief. So there he's talking about, hey, we've got something great to look forward to, but now for a short time we may have grief. You've already touched on this, that the proven character of your faith, of more value than gold, which though perishable is refined by fire, may result with praise, glory and honour at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Sometimes God, as you've seen, allows the stuff to come into our lives so that we grow and mature. And then he says, And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though not seeing him now, you believe in him. That's faith. And you rejoice with inexpressible and glorious joy. Notice this. Because you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Salvation is both that instant time when we believe, but there is this process of ultimate salvation is never complete until we are home with our Father. Now I'm going to do something radically different. I haven't asked approval for this, but I'm going to do it. Uh, Last week, or the week before I heard there was a question, someone answered from the Westminster Shorter Catechism, uh, the chief end of man. Who was that? Oh. Let me call. I thought I'd go back even earlier to uh, 1563 to a thing called the Heidelberg Catechism. Uh, and the first question, and I want us to say this together, okay? This is, you, 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 don't, you don't do sort of liturgy stuff here, do you? No? Okay, well, you're going to do it. I'm, I'm, going, to, I'm, a, I'm going to do something new for you. You're going to learn something new, and then we'll sit back and listen to, to the song. Okay. Here we go. I'll ask the question and then we we respond together. It's a a lovely statement. What is your only comfort in life and death together? That I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and death to my faithful Saviour, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ by his Holy Spirit assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Parramatta Christian Church podcast. To hear other sermons or to find out more about our church, please visit our website at pcc.org.au.